Hello and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast of the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. As the world begins to face up to the rising tide of global plastics pollution, one key aspect of the problem still has a low profile, yet it directly affects many, many millions of us. The plastics routinely used in agricultural production, commonly called agroplastics, may account for just 3.5% of the plastic used around the world each year, but the nature of their use means that they directly and disproportionately impact the human food chain and the wider environment. In a new series of reports under the collective title of Cultivating Plastics, AIA's Ocean Team has taken a closer look at the problem and what to do about it. I'm Paul Newman, AIA's Senior Press and Communications Officer, and today I'm joined by AIA Ocean Campaigner Lauren Weir to talk about the reports and some of the key findings. Lauren, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Thank you very much for having me, Paul. My pleasure. <laughs> I suppose the most sensible place for us to start is with agroplastics themselves. Just, just what are they, and why are they so prevalent in modern farming? So, as you mentioned, agroplastics are plastic products that are used in agriculture, um, and that is the growing of produce and in the storage of feed for livestock. Uh, They're also used in horticulture, uh, in the growing of flowers and houseplants, for instance. Um, And to really be able to understand uh, how they came to be, it's important to look back at their origin. So that's typically attributed to a professor, uh, Professor Emmert, uh from the University of Kentucky. And he's typically credited with creating one of the world's first plastic greenhouses in 1948. He initially designed this to grow and study tropical plants, uh, which was his area of expertise. And he then went on to develop uh, plastic film uh, for the use of low tunnels and mulch, which is a plastic film placed on top of soil, uh, given uh, plastic is very malleable as a material and it's cheap. And it helped with with the growth of these tropical plants. And this development, it's really important to put in place and time, this development really coincided with the increase of use of plastics throughout different sectors at the time. In the 1950s, we really see a proliferation of plastics, as well as the development of intensive agriculture globally. So uh, in terms of terrestrial agroplastics, there are different kind of categories that they can be classified as. So we've got things like protective cultivation films. So those are greenhouses, high-low tunnels, uh, plastic film placed on top of soil, so mulching, mulch. As is, is that the before. stuff that when you're driving through the countryside, you see great sheets of it shimmering on fields like exactly. water moving almost, yeah? Exactly, that's mulch. Um, and then you've also got agroplastics like nets, so anti-hail, anti-bird nets, irrigation, piping and drainage is a really big one as well. Then you've got packaging but not packaging of the produce that's being grown, but packaging like fertilizer sacks or cans for agrochemicals, for instance. You've got agroplastics as fertilizers, so microplastics in slow-release fertilizers um, or as protective seed coatings as well. And there are lots of other different types of agroplastics too, like silage films. These are films that you see wrapped around hay bales or animal feed, for instance, uh, bale wraps, uh, different kinds of ropes and tapes, and a really important type of agroplastic that doesn't get as much attention and isn't necessarily uh, categorized with, with the rest of them, but it's still important to talk about, is unintentionally added 
agroplastic. And what that is, is the microplastic content that can be found in compost or in sludge and slurry, which is essentially uh, the residuals that come off any kind of wastewater treatment that's applied to land as an organic fertilizer. So unintentionally added, I mean, that sounds a bit of an oxymoron. It's like you don't put a sugar in your tea when you take it without. Uh, how does it end up in there if it's not intentional? Is it in, in some other substances that are then used to make the product? That's exactly right, yeah. So you're going to have microplastic contamination, for instance, through uh, washing machine water. If you're washing your clothes and the textiles are made out of plastic, which a lot of them are, um, I mean, plastic is omnipresent and rife everywhere. So, so unfortunately, there is high levels of microplastic content in things like sludge and slurry, especially because during the wastewater treatment process, they want to remove microplastics from the water that's being treated. And so it's pulled into the residual sludge and slurry. Gotcha. Hey, so plastic pollution, I mean, it's not just a crisis of scale in terms of the, the overall amount of plastics. It's a crisis of duration, too. Um, I mean, literally, time isn't on our side with this one. So what, what can you tell us about the lifestyle of the life cycle of plastics from, say, the extraction of the fossil resources needed to make them in the first place? Yeah, I, I think this is a really great question to kind of contextualize the issue of agroplastics as a whole. Um, so I think probably the best place to start would be with the extraction and production of plastic. So conventional plastics, as they're referred to, are derived from petrochemicals. And petrochemicals are fossil fuels, so they come from oil and gas. We all know that rampant oil and gas extraction has resulted in climate change and emissions really need to be phased down very quickly. So plastic production has a role to play in this. The International Energy Agency, for instance, states that petrochemicals are becoming the largest driver of global oil consumption. So what they've said is they've estimated that nearly half of 2050 oil demand will come from petrochemicals and that plastic is the fastest growing petrochemical material. So plastic reduction is crucial for so many reasons, this of course being one of them. But then when it comes to plastics, we also need to look at the level of production and the design of plastic products. So we're consuming an exorbitant level of plastic with the United States of America and Europe, including the UK, taking the lead in terms of plastic consumption per capita. And the majority of plastic products are not designed to be circular. So what that means is that they're not designed to be recycled multiple times into the same product again or even recycled at all. And there's a lot of focus on increasing plastic recycling. However, recycling only offers a very small solution. It simply lengthens the eventual disposal of plastic. And not only that, the majority of plastic has never been recycled. So uh, the OECD published uh, a really excellent report looking at this very recently. And what they found was that between 1990 and 2019, uh, recycling as a treatment option only accounted for 6% of all plastic waste generated. The, the majority of plastic has never been recycled. Um, so the OECD uh, recently published a report on this, which is very excellent. And what they found was that between 1990 and 2019, recycling as a treatment, end-of-life treatment option only accounted for 6% of all plastic waste ever generated. 
And that means the vast majority of plastic waste throughout these two decades was being landfilled. I think they estimated that to be 54%, mismanaged at 24%, or incinerated at 14%. And these numbers haven't necessarily improved significantly over time. So when we look at uh, 2019, for instance, they estimated that only 10% of all plastic waste generated in 2019 was recycled. So plastic pollution is incredibly long-lived, as you know, and plastic production relies also on the use of many harmful chemicals, so it's also toxic. So what has this resulted in? Why, why are we talking about plastic pollution and why is it such an issue? So this urgency um, really serves to highlight that we are in a plastic emergency, right? So plastic production and consumption has increased exponentially since the 1950s. Despite only having been present really throughout the scale of the equivalence of one lifetime, their design, the chemical components, the sheer scale of production, you know, them being a significant outlier to circular economy objectives, means that they have a very toxic and long-lasting legacy. They are found within every single environmental compartment and in a large percentage of fauna and flora, including us, including humans. You know, we have plastics in our breast milk in our placentas, in our lungs, in our blood. Um, and it's already been clearly evidenced that continued levels of production pose a direct threat to planetary boundaries. So plastic pollution is a very serious issue. And at the beginning of this podcast, you mentioned you know, that agroplastics, it's estimated that they actually only account for 3.5% of global plastic usage per year. So a significantly small proportion. But the thing is, how they're used and where they're used and how they're designed means that they actually have an incredibly devastating effect. They cause environmental and human health harm that extends far beyond far la- farmland. And uh, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll go into that a little <laughs> later as well. <laughs> well, as, as we said, they're, they're kind of locked into the food chain from ground zero, aren't they, effectively? The yeah. minute you start planting seeds, they're already in the soil, the seeds growing in. They'll be in the fertilizers you put on the land to help those seeds grow. So it's, it's a major problem. And one of the things that jumped out at me while you were talking was um, about the, the problems of recycling and how... how well, what a small proportion of plastics are actually able to be recycled, on an even smaller number actually ever have been. Um, it's, it's interesting, obviously, but we're not going to be able to recycle our way out of this. Uh, and yet it occurs to me that a lot of what I've seen from the plastics industry and lobbyists are that recycling has to be a major part of any solution. And so, well, how's that going to work? Exactly. We, we, we definitely need you know, to to be looking at reduction and alternatives like reuse and refill, right, material, uh, just simply using another kind of material that's also single use will have its own environmental implications as well. Um, So, yeah. We've got to think more closely about this one. Exactly. (laughs) Now, at face value, um, agroplastics seem to perform a very important function in, in agriculture and farming. And as we said earlier, when you you can't escape them driving through the countryside, you pass acres of polytunnels and even more acres of rippling plastic mulch sheets. Um, if it's so commonly used um, and it's such an important aspect of producing the food that the world relies on, why are we as an organization, AIA, raising the alarm on, on this use? Um, before before I go uh, into why we're raising the alarm, I think it might be helpful to then explain a little why they're used. So there are two main reasons as to why the function behind the proliferated, 
proliferated use of agroplastics has happened since the 1950s is either to replace traditional agricultural methods, so like replacing plant mulch with plastic mulch, or in some regions it's to develop new practices, so like localized irrigation and water scarce regions or something like this. So agroplastics have the ability to boost short-term, and I make a note that this is short-term, agricultural productivity. And that's in terms of quality, in terms of yield of produce, so how much is produced, and economics as well. And this is through general protection, like increasing soil temperature and suppression of weed growth, as is the case with the use of plastic mulch. The efficiency in the use of other inputs, like herbicides and pesticides, sorry, and natural resources like water. And you're reducing the risk of unforeseen climatic events as well. And you're extending localized growing seasons. So this is really why they're used to such a scale. And in terms of raising the alarm, we go into this in a lot more detail in our subsequent reports. Um, in a very brief nutshell, I can I can go through them. So the first is they have environmental and human health impacts. Agroplastic leakage into the environment causes physical, chemical, and biological harm to soil, to terrestrial, aquatic, and marine life and ecosystems, and ultimately to human health. Uh, whether that's be that be through uh, you know transfer of microplastics through the food supply chain, or you know in terms of using and managing them at end of life, like agricultural workers being in close contact with them. And the effects, the, the physical, chemical, and biological harm, these effects are often combined. Um, and this includes, you know, agroplastic contamination negatively impacting soil quality, soil dwelling organisms that, that you know, have very important ecosystem functions, plant health, and it reduces crop yield overall because of the decreasing soil quality. And the impacts of agroplastic extend far beyond farmland as well. I touched upon this a little earlier. Uh, you know, uh, contamination has been documented in grazing terrestrial animals, the atmosphere, especially through burning of agroplastic waste, drinking water, and aquatic and marine environments, ecosystems, as well as wildlife. And a major driver of the environmental impacts of agroplastics is their fundamental lack of recyclability the lack of collection of them at end of life and the recycling capacity to be able to recycle them in an environmentally sound manner. So in the absence of these clear routes for disposal and recycling, agroplastics are then more vulnerable to mismanagement. And we've got examples of that happening throughout the UK food supply chain, whether that's agroplastics being dumped, being burnt or illegally exported. And those that are illegally exported, they're then likely dumped, landfilled, or incinerated in recipient countries. So mismanagement of agroplastic waste further down the line kind of compounds the environmental and human health impacts that they have. And I really won't go into this too much now, but also there has been growing awareness of the issues around agroplastic use. And so there's been research into and for, you know, trying to get adopt alternative products or alternative agricultural methods. However, certain of these solutions are not without their own environmental impacts. Um, and, you know, we really need to be able to look at these and address these before, you know, we lock ourselves into another kind of harmful production model 
Uh, an example of that would be, for instance, what we spoke about earlier. So the lack of adequate regulations in the practice to remove microplastics from sludge, for instance, prior to being used as organic fertilizer on farmland. It rather begs the question, um, if agroplastics cause this much harm and, and are so widely mismanaged, why are they still so widely used? Has there just not been an appetite to address them as an issue before, or is there just a reluctance to? Oh, my goodness. I mean, there are so many reasons for this. Um, I'll, do my, I'll do my best to summarize it. But, How about top, top five? Uh, yeah, top five. Um, so... Uh, I don't, how to put it, their, their proliferation since the 1950s occurred without much monitoring or scrutiny, you know. Um, you know, mandatory reporting and data on agroplastics is somewhat lacking. And so since having become an important part of agriculture and growing, they, they haven't been scrutinized. So current systems with regards to plastic production make them convenient as well, economical, they allow pride produce to be grown outside of growing seasons. You know, they increase short-term crop yield, but not long-term crop yield. Um, and this this lack of monitoring and scrutiny, which is now changing, which is great, and what we aim to change as well, means that how much is used, how they're designed, and at, you know, the, their treatment at end of life when they become waste and the treatment infrastructure is lacking. And it doesn't take the environmental and human health impacts and harm they cause into account as much as they should. So what we're showing in this report is we're taking a step back and we're looking at the entire UK food supply chain to look at others that have an impact on agroplastic use and their management at end of life. So what we're looking at is those with the regulatory responsibility to ensure we're protected from agroplastic pollution, so those are governments. And those with the purchasing power and uh, those, you know, and outline the market within which farmers and growers operate. So in this case, we focus on the UK grocery retail sector, but this also includes suppliers. Uh, what kind of regulatory policies are already in place to address these issues? And I guess in tandem with that, what can we do about policies which do exist, but which appear to be paying the polluter, like uh, UK farmers getting government payments for using slurry on their land, which itself contains plastic pollutants? I mean, there's a very short answer to this question and a, a bit of a longer one. I'll start with the short answer first. <sighs> there aren't adequate regulatory policies in place to address these issues. That's a short answer. There are no global regulatory frameworks to coordinate you know, the, 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 the management and use of agricultural plastics across their life cycle globally. The FAO um, and, you know, negotiations for the upcoming Global Plastics Treaty serve to, to, you know, address this to a certain degree and to complement each other in terms of how that's, that's going to be um, outlined. But they're both still in development. So there's nothing globally yet. At the UK level... Um, you know, there's one specific regulatory measure. Um, and that's, you know, as of around about 2005, 2006, all devolved national waste management regulations also included agricultural waste. And as of 2019, Scotland and then England and Wales put this in previously, had, they have a ban on bur burning and burying agricultural plastic. So farms are now required to dispose of this waste through recycling and reprocessing routes. So 
this is one measure, but it's a very unsupported measure given there's a lack of recycling infrastructure and collection at the UK level. And UK policy specifically addressing agroplastic use and pollution is distinctly lacking. Um, and what we aim to highlight is that worse than this, you know, the UK is cognizant of agroplastic related regulations that are being created elsewhere in the world at the national level. So the UK has actively decided not to pursue current best practice policies. This includes um, putting in place a mandatory extended producer responsibility scheme for non-packaging agroplastics in 2010. So making sure that you know manufacturers and distributors um, of agroplastic waste also were involved in the payment to ensure that they were managed in, in an environmentally sound manner at end of life. And there are you know, many mandatory EPR schemes in other countries that prove that being mandatory, they ensure better collection and recycling rates and the, the, the onus and the price is not put on farmers and grovers. Then you've got England, Scotland and Northern Ireland that has yet to enact an oxo-degradable plastic ban. The EU has, despite this type of polymer being highly damaging and cause and used as an alternative type of mulch. And then you've got really simple product requirements like, you know, guidelines on mandatory mulch thickness, which might help reduce the amount of microplastic contamination that can occur to reduce like breakage and soil contamination. Um, that's in place in China and it's not readily available in the UK. And then, you know, you, you mentioned paying to pollute. Um, and that is also a really concerning development that we, we've identified at the UK level. So a lack of political appetite to tackle agroplastic pollution, or even it might be, you know, even clear knowledge on the issue involved, has served to worsen agroplastic pollution in terms of ongoing policy development. So one example of that was the unforeseen inclusion, but thankfully now the removal of silage, plastic silage wrap within the UK plastics packaging tax, which would have had potentially destroyed the to date voluntary agroplastic waste extended producer responsibility schemes in place in the UK. And another is payments to farmers applying sludge, potentially highly contaminated with microplastics to their farmland under DEFRA's sustainable farming initiative, whilst current policy uh, UK policy fails to, to really address the issue surrounding microplastic and heavy metal content in sludge in the first place. Uh, the UK, um, as I'm sure most people are aware, we don't just source uh, produce from UK farmers and growers. Um, so is it right to say that the true scale of the impact of the UK food supply chain actually reaches far outside the country's current regulatory jurisdiction? And, and how do we address that? That's that's exactly right. So so according, we we've looked into this into the report and we've map, mapped out the UK food supply chain for 2021, um, and we've also uh, referred to a lot of government reporting and data. And what they say is, the UK's food supply primarily relies on domestic production and imports from EU countries. So in 2021. Um, you know, these two sourcing regions, the UK and the EU, they, they made up 81% of the country's food supply. So 58% from the UK, 23% from the EU. The remaining sources uh, of, of produce and food come from Africa, that's 5%. And then you've got Asia, 4%, North America, which is 3%, South America, which is 4%, and then the rest of Europe. That's not within the Union 
3%, and then you've got Australasia at 1%. And um, the government says that this, this kind of uh, food supply chain has been relatively consistent over the last 10 years. And the UK has a self-sufficiency ratio of 60%. And what this means is it's largely self-sufficient in domestic production of grain, some meats, eggs, milk, and potatoes, but only produces 54% of fresh vegetables and 16% of fresh fruit that's consumed. So it imports the rest. And DEFRA specifically state that UK food production is driven by market forces rather than aiming to maximize calorie production from available land. So what this means is there are different major sourcing regions around the world for the UK. There are some overlaps, like Spain, France, and the Netherlands are all really key sourcing countries. But typically, different produce and different food, different produce categories that are all dependent on different types of agroplastic use have different sourcing regions. So as a result, the impact of the UK food supply chain um, and therefore, the UK's agroplastic footprint is complex, is fragmented. Uh, for instance, you know, a significant amount of fruit is imported to the UK. It comes from South America, whilst many vegetables imported f come from other European countries. So, you know, how we go about it and the, the UK's impact in these different countries and regions will change quite markedly. So where supermarkets decide to source their produce and when they decide to source their produce has an impact on agroplastic use around the world. And this is when I'm going to go into, you know, some of the, the, the surveys that we've been doing for this report. So since 2018, EIA, in partnership with Greenpeace UK, we've been surveying the plastic footprints of the top 10 UK grocery retailers. Um, and that includes actions taken across their supply chains with regards to agroplastics. So we've, we've integrated those findings within the report. And as of 2022, what we found is measurable objectives, supermarket-led sourcing policies and adequate funding, uh, you know, to be able to scale solutions. They've not yet been established by the UK grocery retail sector. However, all supermarkets surveyed recognize the need for a sector-wide initiative dedicated to agroplastic pollution. And more supermarkets overall are requiring certain suppliers to follow third-party certification standards or voluntary schemes compared to when we first surveyed them. So there's been a measurable shift in awareness and projects and trials, but these are not matched with concrete action, nor are they supported by enabling, you know, kind of policy frameworks at the UK level. So the supermarkets have a lot to gain through, through a collective approach to the issue um, and a unified approach and to, to be able to learn from each other from their projects and their trials. Also, it would mean that farmers or growers are equally supported around the world and that would mitigate any kind of potential market risks for any one individual retailer pursuing a certain sustainability initiative. Um, and so we're wanting to highlight this and work with supermarkets, government and other stakeholders, including farmers and growers, who have the operational expertise to really allow for this to happen. Yeah. So, so look into the future, and, and ideally, I guess from your point of view, the, the, the immediate future, what you're essentially saying is the UK government and the grocery retail sector should focus on helping to reduce the amount of agroplastics we actually use altogether and to make sure that policies are in place so that what we do use is actually managed in an environmentally sound manner at the end of its life. Is, is that loosely it in a nutshell? 
That's exactly right. Uh, unlike other types of plastic products, though, I think it's quite important to, to highlight that agroplastics and their problems are unique because their use is currently deeply embedded within the provision of, you know, one of society's most essential services. Food well, literally and metaphorically. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so you know, a, a significant amount of current agricultural plastics have been designed around agroplastic use, you know, and those are just one aspect of agriculture's global impact on the planet, which also includes climate change, you know, and other intense forms of environmental degradation. And they're also unique because of their considerable importance as both like a time-sensitive necessity, but also as a source of very long-term damage that, 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 you know, contaminates other environmental compartments as well. So their use can create essential short-term abundance of produce, but they're also creating mid- to long-term scarcity of the very same produce. So disentangling the solutions to all of this will require, you know, multiple different measures and approaches and ways of being. But despite the complexity of terrestrial agroplastic use, urgent action is required um, and the two key stakeholders that we make reference to in this report so, so you know government those with the regulatory responsibility as well those with the purchasing power like the grocery retail sector uh, should be doing more we feel like they should be doing more the owner should not be on farmers and growers alone to you know pay the price for this well, one last thing to consider um, before we wrap this up. Um, <clears throat> given that food production is 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 absolutely vital, and you know we see various reports as to how many days away from not having any food the world is, and of course there's also the recent backdrop of the UK experiencing ongoing shortages of certain vegetables, things like tomatoes, for example, and the empty stalls when you walk in. How do how do we set about um, tackling ag- agroplastics and reforming the their use in in the um, agricultural sector while at the same time ensuring that food supply chains aren't negatively impacted that we don't end up with empty shells as a result of that no exactly no that is incredibly important and 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 on you know the the shortages in certain fresh vegetables at the moment so the uk is experiencing some produce shortages um but the reasons for that are, are quite numerous, you know. Many of the current produce shortages are vegetables that are not widely grown in the UK at this time of year, given they're not in season. So the UK is reliant on importing produce from countries, other countries, as well as UK-grown produce, but through the use of heated greenhouses. Uh, that include plastic, by the way. Um, and, you know, a number of ongoing developments has meant that those who are typically provided, who typically provide the UK with this fresh produce at this time of the year, they're facing many difficulties. That includes changing weather patterns brought on by climate change, trade issues brought on by Brexit, market powers, inflation. We've got a cost of living crisis. We've got a global energy crisis. We've got a fertilizer price crisis. There's a lot going on. Um, and other types of agricultural practices can also cause environmental and human health harm. So we need to keep that all all you know in mind and there are indirect drivers to agroplastic pollution and use as well like food waste for instance you know where we're using agroplastics to increase crop yield to increase abundance for you know a significant amount of this produce to simply be wasted and thrown away at the end of the day so this is a complex issue but there, there, there are kind of like four important points to keep in mind when, when you know, we're wanting to address this and how to tackle it. And that is, this is a global issue. Regardless of where produce is grown, agroplastics are currently being used to varying degrees everywhere. And we can't keep only focusing on the short-term abundance they provide. They 
you know, there are significant environmental and human health impacts happening now. And this will worsen in the long term as well. So it's really of paramount importance that this is placed firmly on political and industrial agendas. We need to focus on the function agroplastic products provide, not the use of the products themselves. And there are a number of measures that can already be put in place immediately that will begin helping with this issue. Things like introducing mandatory reporting of agroplastic placed on the market, its use in waste, you know. Um, eliminating highly problematic and toxic plastics that are used, like oxidegradables or PVC, for instance, um, and to ensure that you know we have mandatory extended producer responsibility and schemes in place for the collection and recycling of agroplastic waste, and these are designed in such a way um, that you know it's affordable for farmers and growers uh, to ban plastic waste exports outside of the UK because we're exporting our plastic waste to other countries because we can't handle it ourselves and this, you know, acts as a linear loophole. We have, you know, we've got we've got really a lot of recommendations outlined in this report, so I'm not necessarily going to go into all of them here. But one thing I would like to touch on is that we have to go about this collaboratively and we have to make sure that certain interventions are well-timed so there are no negative repercussions and a lot of different policy measures and a lot of different measures that you know others like grocery retailers can put in place they will need to be introduced in tandem in order to be as effective as possible and ensure that there you know aren't any short-term negative repercussions on the supply of certain produce. Well, I guess it comes down to making sure that the solutions aren't introduced as rashly as the problem was in the first place. Exactly, yeah. Nice one. Um, well, hopefully we can entice you back um, in a few weeks' time and you can give us um, an update on, on the rest of the reports and their conclusions and how they went how, and where we go next. Sounds great. I, I'd be very happy to. Excellent. Well, Lauren, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes. And do check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thanks very much for joining us, and wherever you are, stay safe out there. Mm-hmm.